and welcome to the One Football Podcast. Manchester City and Liverpool play out the perfect football match. Spurs take advantage in the Champions League race, and we could have another Beckham on the scene very soon. So all of that coming up as I, your host, Matt Froelich, am today joined by Podrick Whelan. Hello. And Joel Sanderson-Murray. Hello. Chaps, I know there's been a lot of Premier League football over the past couple of days, but there was a story at the end of last week which I want to get your opinion on, and it's Maradona's shirt going for £4 million, potentially £4 million. Um, What would you do with it if you actually managed to buy it? Oh, well, as a... As a Scotsman, I would probably have to hang it up, pride of place, <laughs> somewhere. Although I have seen his daughter apparently is denying it. Yeah, I, I saw it's that. Not actually, the jersey. So it, it, it I was... wouldn't want to risk spending four million on a one that Maradona didn't even wear. That would be. What, what, what I found the funniest thing was Steve Hodge, the England player, was the one who swapped shirts with him, and. Uh, it, that was like the highlight of his career, so much so that he released a memoir in 2010 called The Man with Maradona's Shirt. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to do a follow-up memoir, The Man Who Sold, yeah. who doesn't have Maradona's shirt anymore. Oh, dear. Uh, so I thought it was really astonishing. But yeah, you, you mentioned that it could potentially be a fake one. There was all these stories that it was actually just a regular shirt found in a in a store in Mexico City because it wasn't the same it wasn't the same fabric as the original ones that they wanted and this away one was had you know the the crest and the numbers ironed on yeah. and it was it the first half or the second half shirt absolute nonsense imagine 4 million well, I mean I know he scored the hand of god goal and one of the greatest goals ever but I think that's a little that bit that was one of the greatest goals ever Oh, right, okay. This is what happens when you have a Scouse person and a Scotsman on the podcast. Yeah. No one wants to <laughs> indulge in my Englishness. No love for the England national team here. Yeah, yeah <laughs> this is this is the wrong crowd to talk about this with. Uh, you, you could, of course, um, tweet any of us with your interesting footballing stories from around the world. There's at Matt underscore Froelich or at OneFootball. You can also drop us an email with your questions. The podcast, the address even, is podcast at onefootball.com. There are a few more of them to get through. We'll get through them at the end of the show, but we'll kick things off with Manchester City against Liverpool. Joel, we watched this one together and you weren't crying tears of joy or sadness at the end. So I'm interested to know your thoughts. Did it go to plan for Klopp and Liverpool or did they ride their luck at times? I, I, um, I can't say it went to plan because I think the plan would have been to win the game. Because <clears throat> I think Liverpool possibly needed to win that game if they are going to win the league but obviously we'll come on to that but um I think I think they did ride a look especially especially in the first half I think Liverpool were really sloppy there were a lot of misplaced passes from like Van Kamber Arnold even Van Dijk at times and Fabinho was getting done a bit too easily like he, Kevin De Bruyne walked past him for the goal really and it was really weird I don't think Liverpool settled particularly well and I, I'm not sure whether that was down to Man City's relentless pressing in the way they controlled the game, or whether just Liverpool just maybe the occasion got to them a bit. Um, and to be honest, I think the only time that Liverpool really did anything was was a goal in the first half, and, and they, they worked that goal really well. But I don't remember us ever really threatening Man City after that, apart from the mad Edison goal line thing, which is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love the idea that he's, he's posted on Instagram, like it's like he meant it, and it was all part yeah, of playing it off cool. Man. Yeah, <laughs> but no, and, and saying that though, I don't think Man City opened Liverpool up 
time after time. There was a sterling chance, wasn't there, when Alison has to come on and make a really good save. But like, City controlled the ball really well and, and were, it was really hard to get out and, and Liverpool just, just didn't. And But the, the goal, Kevin De Bruyne's goal, comes from a, a massive deflection on it. And it's, and then we're real, Liverpool are really sloppy at the back for the second goals. But second half, they come, they come out after half-time and, and I thought Liverpool were brilliant second half without ever saying he deserves to win. I don't think our team deserves to win. I think it's one half each and these two amazing teams have gone toe-to-toe for two games a season and just can't be separated. So I'm looking forward to all going to penalties next weekend in the Cup and me getting angina again. <laughs> I was going to say, we've got one more instalment, potentially two, if they make it to the Champions League final. So I can't do that. I can't yeah. do that. No. Yeah. I'll have a cardiac arrest. <laughs> do the panic decent that thing, let Benfica run riot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just save all the hassle. Uh, Podrick, as a neutral fan, did this live up to the hype? Yeah, I think so. Like, like Joel was saying, I mean, it put him like on the edge of his seat and almost killed him, probably uh, at times during it. But yeah, if you, if you didn't have a horse in the race, like, yeah, it was just two, probably two of the best teams that English football's ever had. Really, when you look at it, like all their stats and everything they've done over like the past maybe five years, they're still. They're probably still at the the absolute top level even now. To get a game like that that meant so much to like both teams and essentially like Joe was saying, a title decider, like maybe the draw might end up coming back to haunt Liverpool and could cost them the league. I mean still seven games and you probably think both teams won't win all seven. But yeah, it was just, just absolutely amazing. And you I mean, I suppose you don't often you don't often get it, do you? Like a game that late in the season between two teams that are that good that actually lives up to to the hype and lives up to what it was. Like, you remember, I mean, some of them in years gone by, like Arsenal, Man United and some of those games. Like, two obviously amazing teams they were as well, but kind of a bit more uh, blood and thunder. But some of the, the passing during the game, some of the touches some of the players had, it was just... And even when it went wrong, like Joel saying, like Van Dijk and stuff, having... Their scary moments it still just added to like all the all the drama all the excitement it was yeah absolutely brilliant and it's like from pretty much the start of the game like say scored when they did and then like even pretty much the last kick of the game Mares has a chance to oh, yeah. to win it and he tried that that little scoop almost over over Allison like oh yeah We'll be talking about it for a long time, I think. I, I think, really right, as a neutral fan as well, it was probably the most perfect game of football that that yeah. deserved a two-all draw. I think a one-all draw, you think the attackers haven't had a good day because they're good enough to score more than one collectively. And a three-all draw is too much because the defensive sides <laughs> are too good to yeah. concede three goals. So I think a two-all is the absolute nail on the head the most perfect game perfect you could game have asked football. for. Yeah, yeah, the perfect. Yeah. Cruyff said the perfect game technically ends nil-nil, but... Yeah, there was yeah. A, like, a famous Italian journalist, I think, said that. I mean, he this is back mm. when nil-nils were all the rage in, <laughs> in Italy. But yeah, he said that as well. The perfect game should end nil-nil. Everyone's oh. done their job. But, yeah, yeah. I mean, guess the strikers Exce- have Except the strikers. I was thoroughly enthralled. Uh, Joel, where does this leave Liverpool's title hopes then? I've looked at the run-in. It, uh, without being too disrespectful, it's fair to say that City have slightly easier fixtures than Liverpool do. Yeah, I, I feel obviously a lot better Liverpool this morning if Liverpool had won. But um, I, I think the only results that would have made this 
you know, end the title race would have been if City had won and gone four points clear because I think that would have been too much for Liverpool to to claw back. Um, but as it is right now, there's a one result turnaround, and it, it's it's. I mean, it must be exciting for a neutral because I think this race is going to go to the final two games, maybe in the final day again. Like looking at it and thinking that both teams win the last seven games seems unrealistic, but. These two teams have done it before. I mean, we had the 18-19 title race, which both teams just won every single game. It seemed like forever. Um, and that was, I mean, that was horrible to be involved with. But Liverpool do have a tougher running. And I think if Liverpool get past this next week, which is Man United on the Tuesday and Everton at, at the weekend, uh, both are home. So you, you expect both fixtures outright. Liverpool should win. But I think if you you take the look at the emotion of those two games and and what's riding on it um, for both teams. Like both teams are still fighting for certain things. Everton fighting to stay in the division, which is really funny. Um, that, that, that makes them threatening. That makes them threatening because, I mean, they, I mean, both teams, I don't think, are obviously at the standard of Liverpool. But you don't know if, like, let's say, Liverpool haven't scored in seven, by the 75th minute against Everton. Suddenly you get really nervous and the, the force of losing the title comes to you. And that, that could make it difficult. But I think Liverpool get through those two games and win them. I'd be very, very confident that we're going to at least take it to the last day. And that's all you can ask for. But suddenly that Tottenham Hotspur game at Anfield on, on the Saturday night just <laughs> looks horrendous, doesn't it? The form they're in. I mean, that's that's the one I'm thinking Liverpool most likely to possibly drop points, despite Spurs' record at Anfield in the past. Yeah, I was about to say, any other time, uh, we spoke about this yesterday, Spurs are shocking at Anfield. Shocking. But with this run of form, and believe me, we'll get onto Tottenham in a minute, Anything could happen, really. Anything could happen. But we'll start off, actually, just below, looking enviously up at Liverpool and Manchester City. Our Chelsea, who pulled a 6-0 victory out of the hat of Southampton. Uh, we'll come on to them in a minute. But considering their their week they had last week, including the hammering at home to Brentford and the poor defeat to Real Madrid, where on earth did this come from, Joel? I know. I mean... I previewed uh, this game in, in our sort of like Premier League preview looking at the weekend's uh, games and you have to give one way you say there's a potential upset and I, I was all over like Southampton getting something against Chelsea. I think my dad um, said the same. He was convinced of an <laughs> upset. Because <laughs> Southampton are a decent team and, and I've, I've looked at a few of the big teams' noses this year taking points off United, uh, City and, and Spurs and then... Um, and of course, yeah, they could they could really make the difficult. And, and Chelsea just looked like the, the, the wheels had fallen off a little bit over. I mean, defensively, they were shocking against Brentford. And then, I mean, the Real Madrid game, I don't think they played too bad. They just got done by the best number nine in the world, or one of the best number nines in the world, uh, in Karim Benzema. But yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I, I wasn't following the game live and then checked the results at the end. I was like, it's some kind of like glitch in the matrix or something. Where did they come from? But. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're attacking, I think, has been a sort of all season. Sometimes a little bit of pedestrian because they're very patient in the way they build up uh, uh, build up their attack. And they haven't really blown teams away. So it, this like this to come at the end of this week where they've been out of form is, is even more shocking. But I guess when you have the talent of players that they have in attack, that they are bound to at some stage. If they come up against defence, which is just not at it, and Southampton's can be that sometimes. And they can poke holes. That's what they did. And, and fair play to them. They look back, back on the ball. Yeah, it, that is definitely a Southampton thing to do. I mean, Podrick, why are they so susceptible to an utter collapse? Uh, it's looking at like one per season right now. We've had two the two nine nils 
in the last two seasons and now are 6-0, especially at home. What? Well, why is it? Do they just all collectively have an off day? Do they all decide, right, this is the one game where we just can't be bothered? Yeah, I don't know. It, it is weird though, isn't it? Because it, it is quite an anomaly. that They're not a bad team and there's been a lot worse teams in the Premier League like the last few seasons, teams that have been in it, not got relegated. There's still worse teams like that in the Premier League that don't collapse in this weird way. I think there was a stat at the weekend that it's the 21st time that they've let in four, four or more goals and a half in the Premier League, and a third of those have been like when Hasenhut was the manager. So he, there is like something there with like him that pff, whatever happens, the team just collapse. Like obviously you mentioned the nine nil at Old Trafford, did the nine nil against Leicester. Yeah, but I don't know. It just it just seems like obviously it won't be the same players that are playing all the time, and even this one, I thought six was quite kind of them. Like Forster made some saves. Timo Werner hit the. The post twice, and he hit the bar, so he could have had three more goals on his own. Um, and it was, I think, it was six with more than an hour left to play as well. And Chelsea just kind of said, "Okay, you've suffered enough, almost." Um, more than half an hour yeah, left to, to play. Wait, sorry, yeah, yeah, half an hour. Yeah, there was an hour, an hour played. So yeah, yeah, that was that would have been Jesus. A bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, could have got really bad. Yeah. Then. But yeah, like it, it really like. They got out with a 6-0 and it really could have been a 9 again. So, yeah, I really don't know how it keeps happening to, to Southampton. It, it, is, it just seems to be this, like Joel used the phrase glitch in the matrix. It just seems to be that for Southampton. That every now and again, they'll get absolutely hammered, but they'll go out next week and look like a completely different team and back to this, themselves again. I feel like Hasenhüttl's name will be brought up in so many manager-to-chairman conversations in the future. It'll be, you can't sack me. Hasenhüttl kept his job after two 9-0s and a 6-0. <laughs> yeah. Like, he'll be yeah. the standard of what you need to be sacked. Until I've lost 9-0 three times, you can't sack me. Uh, it's probably not something he wants against his name either. So Chelsea stay in third. Um, and below them in fourth, taking a little bit of a driving seat in the top four race, although I'm not, not speaking too confidently just yet, is Tottenham with a 4-0 victory over Aston Villa, who look, who look out of sorts, I think, to say at best under Steven Gerrard at the minute. Uh, Podrick, you're a bit of a Serie A expert around the one football offices. Can you please explain why or how on earth Juventus deemed it fit to sell Bentoncourt and Kulusevski to Spurs at the same time, the same transfer window, and just um, get rid of two seemingly quality players? Well, you should just be thankful for it, man. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it is. It is. Um, I think the the Bentoncourt one, I think, is a little is a little bit strange because they've got there's probably guys in the UV midfield now that aren't as good as him and you've got like Rabiot there's not really done what they expect him to do Aaron Ramsey's going to come back in the summer he's still got another year left so they've they've got like players on the books that I, I don't think are up to up to the level that, that he can produce and he gives them he gives you something that maybe not a lot of UV's other midfielders do but you know, I think with him it might have been just the financial side but the Kulisevsky one I think is just it's simple as that Allegri just really did not like him and even when he had good games, it, it was always he'd always seem to even make a point of like bringing him up in the press conference that yeah he played well, but he's got this to work on, he's got that to work on, and whatever it was with Kulusevski, when Allegri came back, like I mean this is a guy who won Serie A like Young Player of the Year, Juve spent like thirty five million on him. I mean it looks like they're pretty much going to get back 
off Tottenham what they paid for, but he, he's obviously he's clearly talented, and I think it's just a it's a great signing for Spurs because the guy just he seems to be like tailor made to the Premier League, doesn't he? Like the the space that he gets in the Premier League that he wouldn't so much in Serie A or that he did at Parma, less so at Juve. Um, but yeah, he's just he's got all of the all the attributes. I think he's to be an absolute superstar in the Premier League and. Yeah, UV's loss, Spurs' gain for you. Exactly. Uh, Joel Gerrard spoke before the game about how much it would, it, how much more it would mean to Kane to win a trophy with Spurs than it would elsewhere. Do you see him heeding this advice? Or would it be worth it to stay at Spurs in the hope of maybe just one or two trophies as opposed to filling his boots or filling his cabinet with Man City? Yeah, um, well, Stephen Gerrard's like the most qualified to speak speak about that kind of situation, um, considering he, you know famously nearly left Liverpool to join Chelsea and uh, to win trophies and then stayed and ended up winning trophies at Liverpool anyway. But um, I think with, with Kane, we obviously know how ambitious he is and how he wants to go on and win trophies. And, you know, actually been honestly spoken about it, didn't he, with that interview with, with Gary Neville last summer. And, you know, if, if you'd think, like, I think he went into the season thinking, you know, you find it hard to imagine Kane staying past uh, this season and, and maybe leaving at the end of the summer. But I, I think that might be changing now. I, I do wonder whether, you know, his mindset might be, you know, staying at the club he loves and that he, you know, he's, he's grown up playing playing for, um, come through the ranks at and and, and staying there and, and winning it with that and and that might mean more. And I think he was worried last summer because Tottenham didn't look like a team that had a plan. Um, and you know the. You know, messed up that managerial search and he ended up with Nuno Espirito Santo. It was like, what a sixth or seventh choice. And I think he would have looked at it thinking, I have to move if I'm going to be able to do anything with my career here. And um, I, could, I could see why, but I don't know if that picture has now changed. And it's easy to say this considering they're in form at the moment, but you have, and, and, and considering that maybe at the start of Conte's reign, like Spurs looked flaking. Conte was talking about leaving and uh, that Burnley game, didn't he? He was talking about, you know, he didn't like the players and that he could see himself leaving. but it feels really different at this moment in time. I do wonder whether he might just give Antonio Conte that chance in that time and, and think that if Spurs are ever going to do something, it's going to be now. And um, yeah, I, I could see him staying and, and I can see Spurs being in the run maybe you know next season for, you know, let's say top four challenge, but possibly being outside of the title race. But they're not at Liverpool City's uh, level, but you can see them go, uh, going somewhere in the Cubs, couldn't you? And they're possibly going to be in the Champions League now as well. Yeah, I think in just such a small time as well, the turnaround's been astonishing, especially you're looking at two signings in the January transfer. I mean, imagine a whole summer's worth of Conte teaching the team and getting in the players that he wants. Maybe it's a rather exciting time to be a Spurs fan, but whisper that quietly. Anyway, they capitalised on their Champions League rivals, losing all four of them. And we'll start with Arsenal, whose home loss to Brighton came immediately at the end of a week, which saw them lose 3-0 to Palace. And news that Party and Kieran Tierney will miss the rest of the season. Party might make it back for the end. Um, did you expect to see the effect of those two missing so soon, Podrick? Were they really that integral? Uh, yeah, they probably are just because, probably more so Tierney's one, because once Tierney went down, he gave Tavares, obviously, his shot Um at Palace on Monday night, and it was the second game in a row that the poor guy's been taken off. If not in the first half, like he was in the FA Cup game, he was took, taken off um, at half time in this one. So I think his confidence is just completely gone. And then obviously it means then 
that Jacques is having to fill in now at left back, so that opens up a hole in midfield. So Tierney's one that's it's been a bit of a domino effect, and it's kind of affected all the other parts of the parts of the field, as well as the fact that I think my feelings on the guy are, are quite clear. I think he's absolutely an unbelievable player. Probably should be playing for a team that that is in the Champions League, and if Arsenal don't get in, then selfishly I'd maybe want him. Moving somewhere it does, and then part is part is the same. I think like he's had, I think he's had hit and miss moments at Arsenal, but I think maybe since about the turn of the year. Recently, he's been good. That, that, yeah, that that Man City game, the one that they lost um, at the New Year, and they played really well, and it, they, was, they were quite unlucky probably to lose that one. Um, but since then, I think he's he's really started to play well. So you take the two of them out and. You've got a guy up front as well who just can't score goals like in Lacazette and he's playing every single week. It's probably going to catch up on you eventually. Although, I mean, as you'll probably touch on, they maybe were a little bit hard done by um, for another guy getting on the score sheet during the game. But yeah, it's obviously affected them for sure. The the Martinelli goal, I'm assuming you're alluding to. Because yes. I, I look, yes. OK, an uproar is an understatement I saw online. <laughs> but he was offside. From from what I've seen and read is that the, the rule is it's you need two players. No, no, you need two players between you and the goal line. And regardless of whether or not he was played on side from the goalkeeper, Cucurella's foot behind the keeper was playing him offside. So am yeah, I he's right the key thinking? one, isn't he? Because yeah. I, I still don't know if you can tell exactly. Like A lot of the images seem yeah. to block and you can't get a good image of where... That's why I was so surprised that the goal actually was taken away then because I thought it's, it didn't seem so conclusive um, that you couldn't tell one way or the other, I didn't think. So that's why I was quite surprised that the benefit of the doubt wasn't at, was given to the defender and not actually to Martinelli. What I still don't understand is if VAR was brought in for clearing obvious errors, how's the, how's the ref supposed to see that? I mean, he <laughs> hasn't, the ref hasn't had a stinker by missing out a clear and obvious offside. I mean, four minutes worth of injury time and they still aren't 100% sure. So yeah. I'm not sure you can blame that on the ref. Oh, I see the need for VAR. Um, as for Brighton, though, a fantastic 2-1 victory. And Joel, are we facing the Graham Potter dilemma? <laughs> that he and his side's performances are only really applauded when they manage to win. Um, but should we also be pointing out the flaws in his side? Because it was seven games before this. They had six losses and just one goal scored. And the draw was against Norwich. It does seem that... Um... Graham Potter maybe does get a bit of an easy ride from from the media um, when Brighton go on these runs because this isn't the first time. Well, obviously before Saturday, mm-hmm. isn't the first time Brighton have been in in this kind of run and and you know they, they famously had a lot of problems with scoring goals last season that has kind of uh, carried over into this campaign as well. Um, but you know the, the thing is with, with Potter and, and with Brighton that when it when it does pay off and they do well it looks really good and, and they can cause a lot of damage to teams and, and they, I remember they came to Anfield they on the season in a result which could cost Liverpool a title funnily enough they, they were brilliant and like they took their chances really well and they the, the very least they are is they're very solid at the back and um, but the problem is, oh, and they do create a fair number of chances but you know, the problem has been for two years now is sticking the ball in the back of the net and and that when that happens and, and you know and then they fail to score goals. That they 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 do. Um, it seems to sort of carry over to consecutive games after games after games, where they just are going a really big barren run. And, and yeah, this happened again last season. But um, 
yeah, I, I do wonder if he gets away with it a little bit and, and, and is sort of not subject to the criticism that maybe he deserves. And I don't know if that's maybe being a little harsh because he, he has done a lot for that club. And, and like I said before, when it, when it looks good and when they do good, it, 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 they are they are a threatening team. But um, yeah, I can't really make out. I know a, a lot. Of, I think I wonder if some of the fans that maybe started to lose a bit of patience with him because I know they, they booed uh, the team after the draw with Norwich, which. It's fair enough when you're drawn again at home to the bottom side in the league, and I just wonder whether you know they might end up finishing. They probably they will end up finishing mid-table this year, and I just wonder in the summer whether like how far can he take them? What is the next stop? The next step, should I say? And you know, where's the progression? Where's that going to come from? And uh, they might have a little look at things. Maybe it's because they were away eh, that they won because the fans weren't shouting at the team mm-hmm. to shoot every chance they got. <laughs> <laughs> Which is one of the funniest moments of the season. Yeah, yeah. That was always labelled at West Ham when they were doing all right during the pandemic. It was like, because there's no fans in. Like, the fans were making them unquestionably worse. I'm not <laughs> sure that's quite what you want to hear when you're a football-going fan. Yeah. Um, as next up, Manchester United another Champions League fighter, uh, but fell to a defeat which really sums up their season. It was, it looks like 11 individuals out there against a really poor Everton team. Uh, was this more a case of poor United rather than top quality Everton, Joel, or did Lampard actually do something genuinely great? I saw someone on my Twitter timeline during the match saying um, <laughs> that my United are making, uh, sorry, uh, this looks like a, a, a two teams that are battling at the bottom of the table, uh, a game between two teams that are battling, and that wasn't a compliment to Everton. Like It was more the fact that my United, I think, were really abject, mm. really poor, and Everton do deserve some credit because, uh, you know, I, I mean, I don't think they played particularly well, but there was a lot more fight and, and guts on show than, than we saw against Burnley. Um, and you know, they've kept a clean sheet. And I guess the, the fact that the defence has been horrendous recently, they deserve a bit of credit for that. I, I mean, I don't think Manchester United particularly threaten them that much, but um, I, you know, they do deserve credit for, for getting over the line there and getting a clean sheet. I and mean, it could end up being a really crucial result. And uh, obviously there's an, another result that's happened this weekend with Burnley losing where that could that this could prove to be a decisive weekend, the relegation fight, because you know it's everything now got that, that four point gap, and it might just prove to be enough. But you know they've got tougher fixtures coming up, and uh, you know what? I, I obviously, <laughs> admittedly, took a lot of joy out of them losing to Burnley in midweek, and then a lot of the you know you, you see their running afterwards, and I looked down at it and thought. Okay, after Manchester United at home, which I thought was always going to be one of the most winnable games because the state of United in the moment, they have got a lot, of, you know, of really tough fixtures coming up, and and you know they are going to have to try and like pick up a win away from home if they if they are going to stay up, and I, I don't know if they can do that. Um, but this is you know, fair play to them; they deserve to enjoy this because they've had a really bad midweek, but that changed on Saturday, and and I guess Lampard deserves a bit of credit because. You know, he's called out the mentality of these players in recent weeks and, and they, they stood up and, and reacted to that uh, yesterday. And as for Ranick, looking a little bit lost on the sideline, um, Podrick, they're hoping to bring in a new manager, right? And the plan was apparently that Ranick's going to move upstairs, whether it's Ten Hag or Pochettino, whoever's going to be coming in. Are they going to accept working underneath Ranick? Is he soiling his reputation already even before he moves up to that office? Yeah, I mean, it is a weird one that he he's kind of still refusing to answer as well about 
when you step away in the summer, are you definitely going to go upstairs? But I mean, if you if you see some of the press conferences, he does seem to suggest that he will he will definitely be staying in some kind of role. I mean, I mean, I think it took about three or four questions before the Everton game before he finally admitted that he's been like involved in speaking to Ten Hag and kind of sounding him out and stuff for the job. So he's definitely obviously being consulted in that regard. But then, and I think on players as well, there was like a report today that he's he really likes in Kunku at Leipzig. So I mean, clearly they're clearly like using a using that side of his expertise and it's something he's obviously he's talented at and he's, he's shown that other places he's been but as far as like the coaching side goes it's like you said it's just like when you watch them it's just 11 individuals and there is none of the the kind of football that you thought you were going to see even I know it's a style like that it can take a while to implement but you thought you would have seen some kind of change um, under Man United by now but it's just yeah, it's still so stale and just Mm-hmm. They're not fun to watch, and yeah, every every game is almost like a, a chore um, when you turn them on. So if, the, if if they fall any further, kind of, I think he's pretty much said they they kind of need to win every game, and it still might not be enough to to get the top four. If they, the the end of the season could just be like playing out, just like pre season games almost for Man United. It could get really even worse than it already is to watch. So. Uh, yeah, it's been disappointing, Ragnar. But I think like he's clearly he's clearly a good like a, a top football mind, and I'm sure that he will. He stay if he they keep him on board, that he'll have an impact in that regard. But on the coaching side, it's just not fun, Matt. Not fun. Yeah, and I, I really struggle to see without Champions League football how they attract the manager and the players as well. I think it's it's probably something like. You'll have to go with a slightly lesser name when it comes to maybe Ten Hag will join, but the players certainly they're not going to really want to come and play. Like United used to have that pool where even if they weren't in the Champions League, they could still bring players in for big money. But I'm not so sure anymore. They need, they basically need to work on their PR and give their impression that they're on the way up, <laughs> rather than everyone sort of say, saying they're on the way down. Um, another team though chasing in the Champions League but losing this weekend you can tell I'm reveling in this a little bit uh, is West Ham who lost 2-0 to Brentford who I thought were really really good Ericsson's passing was brilliant the threat of Tony and Nombuemo was fantastic Ivan Tony now actually the joint top English goal scorer in the Premier League 12 goals with Harry Kane um, as for West Ham are there European exploits catching up with them Joel uh, if top four is looking too difficult, they can still make the Champions League by winning the Europa League. So maybe it's better to focus on that. I think, I think yeah, that there's definitely a case for that. I mean, they, they didn't go and strengthen too well in January. Did they, like, they never brought a second striker which they, to either back up or, or replace Antonio. And, and I think that's maybe come back to haunt them a bit because they have got a, a thin squad and... You know, it's and they've done well to get as far as, as they have in the league and the Europa League already so far this season. So I don't think they, they deserve to be sort of criticised too much. But they definitely looked like they, they were overawed by Brentford, and Brentford deserve all the credit because they were they were brilliant. But West Ham just looked really leggy, and and I think I think yeah, I think they should be focusing their attentions on on the Europa League. You know, that that tie with Leon is still very much in the balance. You know, you know, you could see how West Ham could, could still win that game out, out there, and. You know, obviously they're going to have to to, to get through, and and I think I think obviously you know there is obviously the, the Champions League place there by winning the Europa League, but it's also just nice to 
to win the Europa League as, as a trophy and and just have that journey and, and the fans have loved it so far this season. They, they've, they've had really good trips and you know they've, they've had a really good night again at home against Sevilla last time out. And I think to have that journey ending uh, possibly with with a, um, a trophy at the end of it, that's what they should be going for. And you know, if you get to a semi final, you just never know, do you? So mm-hmm. I, I, I think yeah, I think they, they should be sort of David Moyes. You know, you might not admit it or you might not show it, but. He might be thinking now, yeah, let's throw it all on on the Europa League on Thursday, and uh, and if they get through that, you, you might start seeing it making changes on on uh, the games in between the, the Europa League games. So, um, um, so yeah, I, I think you possibly should be sensible to do that. To be honest. And uh, talking of a trip and a good night out, we'll move on to Newcastle, um, <laughs> <laughs> who won one nil at home to Wolves. It was the most classic Friday night game in history, and I feel a little bit sad that I watched it. That's no disrespect to both teams, but it was scrappy. It eased relegation fears. Wolves, it's a poor loss for them if they had loftier ambitions. They probably should get at least a point there, uh, a penalty to win it. There wasn't too much quality, but you know, afterwards it's a Friday night. You're in the middle of Newcastle. Have some fun. Have yeah, some fun, boys. Places to be. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot worse place to be. Uh, Chris Wood did score that penalty. Only his second goal for the club. Has this signing been a, li- been a little pointless, Podrick? I was thinking he was signed to score the relegation goals, right? Get us enough goals to avoid relegation. He hasn't done it, but they have worked their way out of trouble. So next season, do they say, oh, well, you've actually bought you to get us the goals, you know, to get us into the top half? Or do they keep readjusting the goalposts for what on earth they spent 30 million for? Well, I think they, they did have to sign with, um, I know he's only got the, the two goals, but I suppose if you look at it, like one of them was an equaliser at Southampton in a game they went on to win. And then this one is a winner in another game. So that's six points he's, he's helped to get as well as the other performances. And I think when when Callum Wilson got injured, they, they needed somebody. They just they had to replace him or else they were they were in big trouble. And I think it's been a, a really good signing. If for no other reason that you look at it and it kinda killed Burnley off as well, as well as, you know, moving them out of it. But you look at some of the games um for Burnley since they've sold them. I think they drew with Arsenal, drew with Watford, drew with Man United they only lost by a goal against Liverpool, drawn with Palace. You just look at some of those games and you think maybe maybe if they had the goal scorer, um, if they still had Chris Wood available to them, that they could have turned a lot of those um, one point or zero points in, into more and they might be a lot closer to Newcastle than they are right now. Newcastle might be closer to them. So I think they'll look at it as maybe £25 million on Chris Wood or £30 million, whatever it was. That's a price worth paying to keep them in the Premier League because if Newcastle had went down um, this year with all the investment, it, I mean, it would have been funny to see what went on in the Championship. It could have been, could have got really interesting some of the players down there. But yeah, I think that it's a it's a price they'll have paid. I think to get them in. And talking about Burnley, they did go on to lose two 0 to Norwich, who who won a football match for only the fifth time this season in the league, and they were actually pretty good. Um, Podri, your take on Dean Smith. Does he go down with Norwich and get him back up and maybe hope to keep them up? Because the last two times that hasn't worked and it looks like now three times in a row that their promotion to the Premier League has been met with a with a straight-up relegation in the in the following season. Yeah, and you know, they're a bit like Fulham in that way, aren't they? Where you think they probably will go down, come back up and struggle again. They, 
Norwich and Fulham just over the past ten years or so, they, it seems like they're just should, they should be playing in a league between the two, <laughs> just just the two of them. Just the road league, yeah. Playing each other because they're too good for one league and they just they don't have the quality um, for the other one. I think Dean Smith, yeah, he'll he'll go down. I mean, he's he's obviously shown um, at Villa, Brentford, and stuff before that he's he's a really more than capable Championship manager. And Norwich have. I know there's like worry about Pookie and his contract, but they've got some good players. Like even that that assist from Norman for uh, Pookie's goal at the weekend, like he's he's a real player. If he can stay fit um, and fire in next season, guys like that, they'll, they'll have no problem coming back up. It's yeah, it's it's what they do, I suppose, longer term. Um, when they do, because you looked at Norwich's recruitment last, so I actually thought for once that they hadn't done too badly, you know, but. I mean, like Rashid and Sargent from Verder Bremen, I guess they were a bit more of a, they were gambles that I guess they haven't worked out. Billy Gilmore looked like he was he'd be perfect player for Daniel Farka in that system. He's had pretty much a wasted season. He's not really developed um, like we kind of thought he would. So yeah, the recruitment will probably need to be looked at again. But I'll not be predicting against. Actually, yeah, I thought they would do quite well this season. I didn't think they. I thought this would be the season that. They'd, uh, they'd go over the hump and stay up, but not to be. No, I, I really don't think so. And I think it's, it has dragged Burnley into a bit of a nightmarish position. And I was thinking it's completely undone their work they did against Everton. Like, they yeah. beat Everton in midweek, Joel. Um, and then because Everton beat United and Burnley lost to Norwich, they're back to square one, effectively. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Yeah, and, and, and this has happened a few times during the season where they've gone and gone a really big result, usually at home. Uh, and, and there was the away winner at Brighton, and then you know they, they don't tend they don't tend to follow that up with a, a really disappointing defeat in a game where you know they're capable of getting something out of, and and that's just been the story of their season. And I never have never wanted to write Burnley off going and say they're going to go down because. You nearly know, say it every season, and they always tend to prove you wrong and and drag their way out of it. But this looks like this could be the year to do, and that's what I felt watching this yesterday, and and seeing how the result played out. That 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 could be that, that could be the, the defining weekend for them. And you know, we did, we did talk earlier about Everton's uh, running, and you know, I, I guess we shouldn't be too dismissive because you know, I guess what another result turning around where Burnley win and Everton lose that that brings it back to one, and and still time for that to happen and. And, and you know, you never quite know. And, and Bailey do have fixtures where, you know, in a normal season, you'd, you'd expect them to, to get, you know, somewhere they, you know, they play West Ham away next. You don't know whether West Ham, like we were just alluded to then, about them maybe focusing on Europa League, whether they can go there and get something. But then they've got Southampton at home, Wolves at home, and then Watford away. And then you're thinking they've got to be getting at least seven points out of those three, and, and maybe even possibly nine. And, are they capable of doing that? Probably not on, on what we've seen this season, but you never quite know whether they can shake off this sort of inconsistency. And if, you know, let's say they, they start with a win against Southampton and then suddenly momentum's building and they can go and do it again against Wolves you know, a couple of days later. That that could be the one that gets you know the, the boat rocking again and, and, and seeing the full steam ahead for staying off. So I don't know. I, I, I do personally think that result against Norwich has done them, but... Um, and, and I wouldn't say I'm going to throw my house on it because anything could change over the next seven games. And another team who looks like they'll be joining them next season is Watford, who who lost 3-0 at home to Leeds at the weekend. And I think the best word for the defending was comical 
at stages. I always felt like with Watford, they had the they had the chance to basically balance out their poor defence with some quality forwards. You got the likes of Saar, Hernandez, Dennis, Josh King, but they're all looking pretty poor at the minute. Are the club in a sticky situation? where the forwards might leave and Hodgson might not stay to get them back up again next season. I don't I don't feel Podrig is in they're in the same position as the likes of Norwich, Fulham, or even Burnley, where they've, to quote Paul Merson, got the bounce back ability. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree because I even think if they go down, you look at Hodgson and you don't know if he'll maybe fancy or did I come come out of retirement for a a project, a rebuilding kind of project to to get Watford back into the Premier League. I think he probably came maybe thinking that he'd do till the end of this season and if he kept them up, he'd, he'd walk away and that, that might be a nice send-off for him. I don't know if he'd fancy the, the, the slog yeah, um, I don't think that so. a championship season is. And and like you said, yeah, there's uncertainty over over some of the better players like Saar. I mean, he missed a big chance against Leeds. Hernandez just seems to ever since he scored that goal against Arsenal, he just he's got like a shoot on sight policy. But every time he gets it, he's like, "I'm just gonna, gonna do it again." Like he was just some of the angles he was shooting from against Leeds. Says, "What are you doing? Pass the ball." Um, yeah, so I mean, I think you're right. I think you'd be Norwich are obviously a much worse team than Watford, but you, you I think you're right. Like long term, you'd be a lot more confident about a team like Norwich. Um, I know you've got a steady base of players, steady manager, you know it's going to be in Watford, yeah. A lot of uncertainty there in the summer if they go down. I mean, um, if they stay up, who knows, but it's not looking good. Yeah, I think maybe maybe we're talking a bit too much about the summer and players leaving, but I think the same could be said for a few players at Leeds, Joel. I mean, they look better. They're really good on the counter-attack. I think Jack Harrison's goal, by the way, stunning. He hit that true. If the net wasn't there, it would have hit some some poor fan in the face. Um, that, that he, he twatted it, I think is the word. Uh, if you're a star <laughs> in that team, like Rafinha, Calvin Phillips, are you convinced enough from what you've seen in the last few months, since Jesse Marsh has come in, are you convinced to stay for what potentially could be next season, aka a much better season for Leeds? Or do you still leave to to a higher club if, you know, someone like Liverpool come in for Rafinha, for example? Yeah, I, I, I think they find any, you know, Rafinha and Cal Phillips, you know, let's you know, focus on those two. I think they, they both find it hard to, they, they must be thinking about their career and maybe, you know, where to go next. And as, uh, for Rafinha's maybe a different case to Cal Phillips because, you know, Cal Phillips obviously, you know, leads boy, loves the club. And I think he's find it very hard to leave. That You know, there's been those rumours and reports this week about, him going to Manchester United, uh, which, I mean, I can't see him re- recreating the Alan Smith drama, so um, I'm, I'm not sure that's going to happen. But he's, he's obviously a talented player who probably should be playing for a team who's fighting to qualify for the Champions League. And there might come a case where he thinks about his, his next step and, and, and absolutely fair play for him to do so. Um, he'd obviously be you know nice and romantic if he stayed at Leeds and, and, and saw it through. But, you know, he, he would be thinking that, you know, I need to progress because I need to keep my place in the England team. Um, and I wonder whether that might come true because with, with Leeds, they obviously have improved with Jesse Marsh, that they're going to be safe now. And and you wonder if they are a bit of a trajectory. But with, with these these two players in particular, let's say they've done two seasons now in the Premier League. They've, they've given that, um, they've you know, showed loyalty to, to the clubs. And you think they, they, they do look a class above where Leeds are in the table. And, I'd, I'd say it's safe that Cal Phillips might end up staying because 
there's not really many more league spots than the Man United ones about teams coming in for him. Um, teams that are better than Leeds, let's say. And I just can't see United one happen. But with Rafinha, I, I think I think he definitely goes in the summer. Like, there's been links for it with Barcelona. There's been a lot of European clubs. And I think he's someone who's he's now shown he can do it in the Premier League. And he'll be looking at that next step. And then, you know, it's been also been links to Liverpool as well, which you know that seems like a, an FSG sign. And so, yeah, I, I think I think I don't think I think Marshall done well deserves credit, and, and Leeds have done well to get where they are after you know a really tricky period where teams are just twatting them everywhere. But um, and they've done well to probably looks like they're going to stay up, but I don't think it'll be enough to convince them to to commit to two, three more years. I'd say. So you can twat a football and a football team as well. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most versatile verb. Since John O'Shea's versatility. That guy could play everywhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> movie got, he was the first one that popped into my head of a versatile player. I don't know why. <laughs> James Milner's up there as well. Good solid versatility. Um, next up, we move to Leicester Crystal Palace. Wilfred Zaha missing two penalties and bagging the rebound as well, which seeing Kasper Schmeichel get annoyed is, is quite amusing. I'm not going to lie. Uh, but Brendan Rodgers said <laughs> after the game of Dewsbury Hall, uh, the midfielder who laid on the assist and got a goal, that the team was missing intensity and pressure, and he brought that. He typifies everything we want to be. He has good industry, a cultured left foot, and he's very honest. So my question is, has a left footer ever not been cultured? Like, what is so cultured about a left-footed player? Yeah, they just seem to have it, don't they, more than... I think there was complaints on Sunday during uh, Man City Liverpool that somebody said, "Oh, Trent Alexander Arnold has a wand of a right foot." People said, "That's <laughs> you can't have a wand; you can only have a wand of a left foot. Yeah. This is unacceptable. Left foots can be wands and cultured, and your right foot apparently, yeah, it's just for standing on. I don't know. That is why I, they get all. I the was love. trying to think of a a, a left-footed player who was non-cultured. And I think the answer is Stuart Pearce. Like his left <laughs> foot was Adriano. just, yeah, just he twatted, it. yeah, twatted the ball. <laughs> like there's just such a little amount of culture in his left foot. I, I can't even, I can't even think what it would be. I can't even think of someone who would define that. Who you'd look at them and go, oh, you know what? That is culture right there in that left boot. David Silver, maybe. Yeah. You can't be English and cultured, can you, Ashley? Cards oh, for your. David Silva's, yeah. you know, that Ricoba, I remember, that played in Serie A years uh, ago, yeah. all those, those kind of... It seems yeah. to be a, a, a cultured left foot belongs to a, a beautiful, long-haired, tan-skinned, Y-front-wearing <laughs> man on the beach. That is... <laughs> on this, though, you never see... You, know, well, you do see right-backs playing left-back at times they need to, but you yeah. never really see a left-back playing right-back. That doesn't seem to be a thing. Yeah, yeah. It's because you can only be cultured in one leg. That's the problem. You can't. Yeah. If you've got a cultured left foot, you can't give some of that culture to your right foot. <laughs> you don't see me do salsa dancing. <laughs> That's the reason the why. You used to get with the left footers. I remember when Nakamura was at Celtic, it always used to be there. Oh, he could open a tin of beans with his left foot. I'm like, what do you mean? How, that's a useless skill. Well, he takes a good free kick, but open, you can open a tin of beans with it. That's yeah. well. If anyone out there knows what a cultured left foot is or has an appropriate definition, please let us know. Uh, that is for all for the Premier League. But we'll move on to our hot topics of the week. We've got a couple of questions sent in as well. Um, 
A hot topic, I just thought I'd get your, your thoughts on the rather interesting news that came out last week, that there were trials to shorten football matches to 60 minutes, but introduce a stop clock, pausing the timer when the ball is not in play. Um, apparently, there's a Portuguese under-23s cup competition this month that is going to happen in. Does this make sense, Joel? Or should we should we basically be more ruthless with punishing time-wasting? Yeah, I think it's more the latter. I also think referees need to get better at keeping ta- at timekeeping because that's the easiest part of their job and a lot of it don't seem to be able to do it um, very well. That needs to happen more than anything else. I, think it's, it's, I hate things like this because you know there are a lot of rule makers and, and lawmakers in football that just seem to keep on picking at things and, and trying to like touch something that doesn't need to be touched and, and like change things that need to be changed. So it's, it's just like, just leave football as it is. It's absolutely fine. Like, I know there's you know, the Florentino Perez comment about, um, or, or maybe there's maybe Agnelli, but it's that Super League um, drama, you know, they're saying, you know, the, the kids today aren't really watching uh, watching football for 90 minutes to get bored. Football needs to be shorter, but I, I don't think that's the case. And I'd be a bit cynical about the stop clock thing that, you end up, it becomes a, a chance for more advertisements and, and you're getting loads more ad breaks, sort of similar to what you see in, in some American sports as well. And um, I think that that seems, I think that's the undercurrent of this idea and that'll become more of a thing rather than actually doing it for the, the benefit of the game. I didn't even think about that, but now that you've mentioned it, there was actually, though, what I thought was really interesting, it was a graph and it was, the percent, the percent of the total minutes with the ball in play from every single Premier League team and Manchester City are by far and away clear with around 63%. So the, the ball the ball is in play for 63 minutes out of the 90 and at the bottom is Aston Villa with about 53%, which really shocks me um, to think that 50% or just over, so you're looking at about 49 minutes, there's 41 minutes of an Aston Villa match where the ball's not in play. Is that really true? I, mean, I, I don't doubt your data, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm astonished <laughs> to think of... Seems like they're getting shortchanged, though, Villa fans. Then. Yeah, <laughs> of all the time wasted. Like, that's how long the ball isn't in play. You're probably right. If if the referee's not adding on 41 minutes at the end of the next Aston Villa game, his timekeeping's terrible. <laughs> uh, we'll move on to some questions of the week, though. Um, thanks to everyone who's written in. We've got one from Hector Ramos here. He said, hey, one football name is Hector from LA. Um, he wants to know how the Premier League or any league would fare if FIFA placed a cap on all transfers. So maybe the most you could spend was like 100 million. Um, he said, would it give the small clubs a chance to purchase players? Um, teams could save money. Uh, or would it give the players the ability to earn way more because of wages? What do you think, Padre? Well, I think your big clubs would still they'd still be your big clubs, wouldn't they? Because even if Burnley, say, are limited on spending 100 million, they, they just don't have 100 million that they're going to generate mm. anyway, are they? So... I mean, it, it, you look at the, the bigger clubs as well, like Man City and Liverpool, like the two, there's the two best teams in the league. They, they haven't spent like crazy money. Like it took a long time before City spent like the hundred million on Jack Grealish, and then he doesn't even play in the biggest team of the season. <laughs> like, we'll not go back into that one again. But uh, yeah, I, I think even if you capped it, it would maybe only affect. Like teams, I guess, like Man United still spend quite a lot of money, don't they? Like if you look at it over the past ten years, where they'll spend fairly. But 
I mean, you're still going to be attracted to the big team. Maybe, maybe in the middle of the table, teams might be a little bit closer together. But I can't see that it would drastically like alter the landscape or anything, or that you would have Watford chasing the top four and Tottenham in danger of getting relegated or, or anything like this. I mean, I just think you're still going to the big clubs are always going to be the traditional big I- clubs that. Play for. I really feel like it would basically make transfer fees completely useless because as soon as a team values a player at the very, very top, you're going to, let's say, for example, you're trying to sign Kylian Mbappe, right? And the 100 million is the most you can spend on a player and you think, great, he's the top, he's worth 100 million. You then can't have Declan Rice going for 100 million. Or Jack Grealish going for 100 million because that puts them on par with Mbappe. So you'd basically force other players down into a, into what yeah. into what they're worth in in uh, uh, because of a deal that had nothing to do with you, which is sort of how it's working now. But I'm I'm not entirely yeah, you're sure. Yeah, a lot of guys introduced. running down. Yeah, contracts. I think that's what it'll be. Is you'll you'll basically find out that teams will say, you know what, a player's even. I'm not going to get involved with all this transfer fee nonsense. I'll run my contract down and then I'll go elsewhere. And if you go for free, you can charge way more in signing on fees and wages. And it'll probably just tip the scales in the other direction. I'm not so sure about that one. Uh, the next one's from Carlos Lopez, uh, who said, Boys, be honest with me. How badly are my beloved Canada going to get thwacked at this World <laughs> Cup? <laughs> we have a, a, a big Canadian, uh, well, Canadian, Canadian football fan in the office. Um, I think she's actually a little bit optimistic. Um, I'm not so sure it's going to be terrible for Canada. Um, Joel, what do you think for the Canadians' chances in the World Cup? Yeah, I think they could um, they could surprise a few teams. Actually, or surprise surprise us, should we say? Um, I mean, they, you know, they've still Jonathan Davis and Alfonso Davis are, uh, are obviously the two that mm. um, two players that stand out from them, and, and obviously a quality and, and playing for really good teams and, and really good leagues. And, and you, you look at that and um, and, and Good for your hats on them, but they, they qualified for the past. I mean, the last five or six games, I think they did it without Davis because obviously he's not been able to play because um, he's you know yeah a bit of a heart as you did earlier on in January, and they, they managed to do it without him for a fair while, and and I think they got a bit about them. It's, it's quite a good story, and and I think what helps them is, is the group that they've now been put in. You look at it, okay, Belgium will probably run away with that group. Then you got Morocco and Croatia in there, and, and Croatia obviously been strong in in the you know past tournaments, but a lot of their players are you know sort of the wrong side of thirty now. And I think they could put a few noses. I could see them, you know, maybe they could easily get end up getting four points there, and that could prove enough to sort of getting through to the knockout stage. And I think it's a there's a bit of momentum about them. There's a lot of their you know, and it's, it's all positivity, and obviously the who's got them winning it here. <laughs> Calm oh, down, Joel. How many are they going to beat Brazil by? Jonathan David Hattie in the final. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the second part of um, well, so there you go. We think they're going to do well, uh, Carlos. The second part of his question was, what is the best ever Premier League survival story? The first one that came to my mind was West Brom being bottom at Christmas and then staying up. Yeah, that that was the first time anyone had done it, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. What do you think, Joel? Leicester, Leicester one under Nigel Pearson, where Vardy was just on flames. The rest of the season, I can't quite remember how. I remember thinking they, they were down. I think they, I think they won seven of the last nine. Yeah, 
it yeah, was. Yeah, so it was. 2015, yeah. I think the Leicester one, Joel, it has to be the right answer, no? Because if they don't stay up that year, then you don't get the real fairy tale and the real best Premier League story ever without that, that one. The, 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 one that, the one that came to my mind was the David Unsworth story of 2007. I'm not sure if you remember. The he was, on the yeah, last day. he was playing for Sheffield United for the season. They let him go on a free to Wigan, 34 years old. Yeah. And on the final day of the season, Wigan were playing Sheffield United, three points behind them, needed to win, and they won two-one, courtesy of a penalty scored by David Unsworth. Came back to <laughs> score it, send his former side down, keep his current team up, and how did they repay him by letting him go on a free that summer? Football is heartless. It's cruel, kids. <laughs> or the non-survival story, poor Neil Warnock getting relegated by Carlos Tevez, who'd been oh. illegally registered <laughs> oh, yeah. and all that, and then they tried to, to fight it all the way. Oh, oh God, yeah. I Shout out that. to Neil Warnock, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah, retiring. Happy, happy retirement yeah, happy to Neil. I, I saw something about this the other day that he was talking about doing a few nights in the theatre upon his retirement. Doesn't quite give him the same buzz. I think they're like uh, like after dinner. Yeah, an wise, evening like, with. What he's going to, yeah, an evening with, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would enjoy an I evening with. I bet he's got some great stories. I thought he was going to do like a lead role in, in Wicked or something. I would have seen that. <laughs> <laughs> he's been playing What's that role for years. <laughs> That's oh, it. Neil Warnock in Wicked. There you go. In an alternate universe. Uh, and lastly, we've got a message from a friend of the pod, Dan, in North Carolina. You'll, you'll, mention, you'll remember he was talking about Gabriel Obertan coming to his hometown club. Uh, he's taken it upon us, upon himself, to message us three times last week with all the goings on in the Beckham household and Romeo, <laughs> Romeo Beckham, who is currently playing for Inter Miami second team. So the reserves... Um, he messaged us saying, Romeo Beckham served up three assists in a three-all draw versus Philadelphia Union. Two of them crosses, one of them a free kick. Like father, like son. Um, and then and he went on to say his second message. Neither Phil Neville's son, Harvey, nor David Beckham's son, Romeo, were named in the squad at the weekend. Presumably at Hibbs brother's Brooklyn's wedding. So there you go, a bit of gossip in there as well. Brooklyn Beckham getting married. And then message us again to say that Romeo Beckham... engaged, I thought. Uh, he's married now, now, mate. No. Got to keep up Where to date he? with I the gossip. Was... And then he messaged us again it. saying Romeo Beckham got another assist last night. Does the footballing world need another Beckham to take it by storm? In fact, I'm asking two people who don't like the English national team. So I'll answer <laughs> that and say, yes, we do yeah. need another Beckham. <laughs> <laughs> And I will not disagree. <laughs> <laughs> we could always do with another bet. So it'll be fantastic. Anyway, that is all from us for this week. Thank you so much to everyone who wrote in as well. You can, of course, do that by getting at us at the address podcast at onefootball.com. That is all we have time for, though, this week. Thank you to my guests, as always. I hope you've all enjoyed listening. And we'll be back again next week. So see you then. I love you.